Cinema Sins has a fan club. It's called the Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash cinemasins. And he got to like he got to talk back to his dad and not get like yeah know, get, get in trouble. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's gotta be cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins from CinemaSins. Hello, hello. Today we have a very special guest. It's writer-director Seth Larney, who uh, has done a movie called 2067. Um, it's uh, coming out on uh, in theaters, di- on demand and digital in October on October 2nd. Um, Seth, welcome. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing your time and everything. Um, uh, I was I was uh, wondering what your what your inspiration was for this project. Um, uh, it's it's uh, it's basically about a you know a world that's uh, running out of oxygen, and uh, some people have to travel through time to solve it solve the problem. Yeah. But what was your inspiration uh, for this movie? Well, you know, I, I grew up in um, in the forest in Australia as a kid. Like I was a real bush kid, you know, so to speak. So my, my summers were really just sort of climbing trees and swimming in. We had this incredible river that runs through our property in the bush, um, swimming in rivers and exploring caves. And um, and then when I when I left that sort of place and, and we grew up with no electricity, you know, like um, just really, really in the forest. And so when I left there and I moved to the city to work on movies, I always wanted to be a filmmaker, right? when I was sort of like five or six years old, wow. obsessed with it. I used, used to read science fiction novels, um, you know, anything I can get my hands on to where this tiny little seven-inch black and white TV. I watched all the classic movies on that. I remember watching huh. Predator and Alien, Gone with the Wind <laughs> and, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. And then when I moved to moved to um, the city to work on the Matrix uh, sequels were my first films. Um, oh, nice. I I heard this, this horrific stat, which was, that the Amazon rainforest at that time, and we're talking 2002 or 2001, right, um, mm-hmm. was being deforested at the rate of something like three football fields per minute. And the Amazon rainforest accounts for 20% of the world's breathable oxygen. And that mm. just freaked me out, you know. Like I, I just was like the idea that, you know, future generations aren't going to have the be blessed with having access to the same life that I had growing up as a kid. It just was sort of terrifying to me, right? Um, and then meanwhile, you know, I, I, growing up, I loved all these classic sci-fi movies like um, 2001 and Soylent Green and Logan's Run and just these, <laughs> these films that, that really talk about like these big philosophical questions is really kind of deeply thematically rooted, fun, you know, fun, exciting sci-fi genre films. And so, you know, to me, you know, and I'm a thriller director, I just I wanted to make a film that is in that vein that is fun for people because films let's face it films are for audiences they need to be fun you know that's why i mm-hmm. love genre films um but as a filmmaker for me the biggest blessing you could possibly have is is to be able to infuse that fun ride with with a question that hopefully can live on in in the audience and, and if that could maybe affect someone's life in even the smallest way then then i think it's worth it for me so so yeah that's really that's really where the, the motivation comes from yeah and and uh you know we uh, 
you know, I was wondering how much like uh, the Australian bushfires got sort of, uh, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of, kind of got caught into this. And uh, of course, uh, California is uh, yeah. going through a lot of this too. And, and, it, and, it, and, and yeah. it's, it's weird because nobody, I mean, it, other, unless you live in those places, it feels like there's, I don't know. It doesn't feel like anybody really knows about this stuff a lot of times. Right. Like it's like it's real for, yeah, like it's real for other people. Um, no, I know. You guys have had a, you know, a horrible time over there and, and, and we did, you know, a couple of years ago here as well. And, you know, it's, um, so, yeah, so not to give too much away about the, the film, but there is this, in the, the, the opening of the movie, there is a pretty big visual effects shot that, that is showing um, the Amazon rainforest being burnt to the ground and uh, not just the Amazon, but, but, you know, half of the world, um, which, which attributes this apocalypse. And that was always in the script. And as I said, you know, the Amazon rainforest and the trees were a big part of the motivation for the writing of the script. And so when um, we would, that, that shot was one of the last shots to come in when we were doing, working on our visual effects. And I literally have, like, I've got three monitors in my office and, and I had, I had that visual effects shot that we're working on with this apocalyptic fire burning and then on the monitor next to it, I have the ra- the fire radar um, because my father's house and my mother's house were both being evacuated on the same in the same couple of day period, and they're three hundred miles apart from each other. That's how big the fires were across here. I mean, that, oh, that was man. just one part. That's just one wow. part of this this much much bigger front. Um, and I was watching the fire like encroaching on my dad's property, kind of freaking out, you know, wondering whether he was going to get out be able to get out in time, you know. He doesn't have cell reception up there, so I couldn't get in contact with him. And I'm, I'm stressing out, thinking, do I have to get in the car and drive up into the fires to try and find him? Um, you know, what, what what do you do? And at the same time, doing these reviews for a visual effects shot for a movie about the same thing, it felt, it felt like just really surreal, you know, like 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 terrifyingly serendipitous. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I love time travel movies, uh, and I love when there is, you know, there, uh, each time travel movie seems to have its own interpretation of how it would yeah. work and everything. I think this is the first time I've ever seen, and I don't know how, again, we don't want to spoil anything in this movie, but I don't mm. think I've ever seen it quite done as it was in this one. If you want to talk about, uh, the, the various details of it, you may, uh, for the audience, but, uh, but, uh, what was your, I, I kind of wanted to know how you came up with your time travel rules. Yeah, man. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll try not to talk about specific spoilers too much, but basically I think like, as we were saying earlier, like off air that, you know, time travel, there's so many great time travel movies that have been made, you know, in the past. I'm a huge fan of this genre. And I think, I think like one of the challenges is doing something new and fresh that hasn't been done before. But also I think that the reason that they work when they do work, um, and I think this goes for all movies, is it's just so important to create a consistent consistent logic, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're dealing with these sorts of things, like I'm a big science nerd as well, right? Um, yeah. I love astronomy. I love physics. Um, you know, there's no real definition of how time travel would work because in many, like many physicists consider it to be a paradox. But mm-hmm. I think that as long as, as long as you create a set of rules for your particular version of time travel, and you stick to those rules religiously, you know, that you never waver from those rules. You create a logic set that works for your universe. I think that's the way through trying to work out sort of like what would happen in every beat, you know? And the other thing for me 
that was really important. And I, I try and bring all choices that I make, whether it's visual effects choices, script logic choices, um, I try and reduce them always down to character. And and what is the what is this the framework um, that you're using that is going to help you to tell the most compelling character journey that you can tell? Like how are those choices going to serve your character arc rather than the other way around? Like rather than the the time travel logic dictating what happens to the character what is this character journey I'm trying to tell and, and those character choices, how are they challenged by the logic, by the, by the time right. travel twists, right? So like another way of putting it is like this isn't a science fiction movie just because it's a science fiction movie. It's a science fiction movie because that's the only way I could tell this particular character story. Um, yes. And also this particular, this particular kind of like thematic as well. This, you know, the thematic is, is can we change things? Can we take control of our own destiny? You know, this like the way I phrase it sometimes, it's like fate versus faith, right? So do we succumb to a fatalistic attitude because, you know, the world's burning to the ground, right? We've got COVID-19 and it's hard, you know, it's hard to stop, you know, and it's affecting all of us. And do we just succumb to this kind of tidal wave, you know, or do we, do we just really believe that if we make hard choices um, and choose to, and you know, those hard choices might mean that we need to sacrifice for each other, right? That we need to do right. things that take us out of our comfort zone. That, but if we believe that that could, that we can make a difference, then then maybe we actually we can, right? So yeah. the time travel sort of like logic is really just designed in a way to challenge his character and really tap into his deepest fears as a character, which we all have as human beings, um, and and sort of and hold him up to the light, so to speak, so that he's forced to evolve and forced to make those choices for himself and. And yeah, and then hopefully audience will, will sort of see the outcome and make their own decision for their own lives about, about that as well. It's actually really interesting. I'm going to try to do this without, without giving anything away, but <laughs> yeah. with, the, with, um, with the Ethan White character, because you also have this great hook, right? You have this mystery element where they get the message right at the beginning, you know, uh, send Ethan White, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so you have this great hook, but then when you find out what that's about, which it was one of those great moments where I'm like, you know, it surprised me, but I was also like, well, clearly it couldn't have really been anything else, which to me is, <laughs> you know, to me is the, is the moniker of a, of a pretty great mystery. And, um, but then I, but I also kind of wonder like how they knew, like how that message, like what if that message hadn't worked, you know, because I mean, there is that kind of battle he's having with whether or not he should go because of things going on in the present time for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I thought that was fascinating. Like when everything just kind of comes together, um, I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah. That's really cool, man. I mean, there's, there is a really big and deep philosophical conversation to be had mm-hmm. around that topic, I think. And it, and it is kind of, it is difficult to talk about in too much detail <laughs> with that because it's like, you know, yeah. it's sort of like the, the, the film, but, um, but I think what it really comes down to at the end of the day is exactly what I was just sort of saying before it comes down to, and I think you know, what, what do you believe? And, and that, and that belief becoming an important factor in the mechanics of things, you know, in, in like, maybe your belief can affect your own reality. Maybe, maybe choice is actually the most powerful and potent factor in the equation, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, I wish, you know, it's, 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 I think it's a topic you can talk about for hours, but it's hard to know how to get into it without sort of, you know, 
referencing plot points. <laughs> That's the thing, man. Like I, I've I've had the uh, there was another uh, movie involving time travel. We I think it was called Volition, but uh, you know it had it had uh, you know it, you're you're sitting there going, I want to ask so many things about this time yeah. travel that's in this movie but then i'm going to give away details of it and everything and you really just should just figure it out for yourself and and uh you know have fun with that you know um yeah i think also something that's really important to me is like i want you know i think it's really cool if you can watch a movie and and say a certain audience member that may not necessarily be a, just a specific fan of time travel movies or science fiction movies even you know, I want that that sort of fan, uh, audience member to be able to watch a film and, and hopefully just have a fun experience. And it may, be, it may be even more than a fun experience. Maybe they watch it and go, wow, okay, that was fun and that was cool. And I kind of feel something at the end, you know, and that can be enough. Like maybe I just feel something about just um, the characters, you know, and, 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 and I feel, I find, hopefully I find that inspiring. But then there's a level down from that of an audience member, maybe like us, right, that are kind of more fans of the genre and who want to be challenged on, on different levels and are kind of up for that challenge and, and, and more active in the kind of digging into the thematic and the story and the mechanics and stuff. And for those people, I, you know, I also wanted a film that they could watch it multiple times and, and for the first few times that you watch it, hopefully you will see, knowing what happens, you'll see the precursors and the foreshadowing and the clues. And as you were saying earlier, you know, this is one of the cool things that you can do with time travel. It's like everything is kind of out there in the open, you know, that, that, that's something I, I was that, you know, I love directors like M night, for instance, right? Like mm -hmm. something that I really kind of like take away from his filmmaking that, you know, I think the biggest trick that you can play when you're making a mystery thriller is to play your cards out in the open, you know, yeah. that, that mm -hmm. it's not Absolutely. like it's yeah. Right. Like it's like, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to cheat the audience. You want to, you want to give the audience the reward that what you hope is that they're, they're following and they're kind of like half a pay, the half a beat behind half a step behind, but they're picking it all up. They're, they're taking it in. They're trying to put it together. But then when you get into the climax, it's just all it should take is this one key in the lock and a tiny little shift, a little click. And then everything comes into illumination and you realize, <laughs> Oh, I had all of that already. Right. Like I saw <laughs> yeah. all of those things, right. They were all there. They all said there's nothing hidden there's no new information here except maybe one little key thing that you didn't that you didn't connect and then it should hopefully become clear um that was really my goal i think from a kind of like fan of the genre sort of standpoint um yeah yeah i love that stuff <laughs> yeah i was uh i was wondering i, I i'm always fascinated by the casting process i mm -hmm. had i had seen mm -hmm. uh cody smith mcphee in a bunch of things uh before this you know he most people probably know him as nightcrawler in the latest x-men yeah. movies um paranorman uh paranorman yeah um and uh you know the the boy in the road um, right yeah yeah um uh ryan quantin i think that's how he pronounced his name um, that's right that's I saw him on True Blood. I think it, what was there was a horror movie he was in just before True Blood that I'm trying to remember what it was, but I'd seen him before. But there were a couple of actors in here that stood out to me, and and not to not to you know to say anything about the rest of the cast, but main mm -hmm. character actors here: Deborah Mailman mm -hmm. and oh, uh, Aaron. Incredible. Yeah, and Aaron Glenane. Yeah. The, the those guys are the those they they are fantastic in this movie. I don't think I'd ever seen them in anything before. 
Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. I say, so, I mean, Deb Malman is one of the one of the best actors that we have working, kind of like in Australia. You know, um, it's mm-hmm. just like really well. They're like best kept secret, but not to us though, right? Like to us, she's like she's a superhero. <laughs> um, she's one of those characters. She's one of those actors that um, uh, my producer asked me at some point. You know, like for this character Jackson, you know, if you could work with anybody that's around, like who would it be? And I instantly was like Deb Malman, but she'll never she'll never play a role like this for me. You know, like I was like she'll never be in this movie. It's not you know. Um, and she jumped at it like she loved it. She just got it on a really kind of like kind of deep level, and I was super blessed. And um, and she's amazing. You know, it's like yeah. literally like a career highlight for me to work to work with her. Um, Aaron Glenane is an actor that. My so Lisa Shaughnessy is my producer. We're also married. We've worked together for many, many years on on lots of different things. We did a television series together, amongst many other things. Um, she made a movie a few years ago called Killing Ground, and Aaron Glenane was in that film. He was one of the leads in that film. And I came down to set to direct a little, just to help out a bit, do a bit of second unit and stuff. And um, I met him, and I was watching him on the monitors on set, and I was like, "Who is that guy?" Because I need to write a role for that guy. Like he mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible. He's a superstar. He's actually yeah. now in the Snowpiercer TV series. Um, oh, that's and, right. I knew I'd seen yeah. him somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was the same thing when we were shooting, when we were about to shoot, it was quite late in the process because, you know, when these things get greenlit, sometimes they just go like really quickly, right? And then all of a sudden you've got to, you've got to put a whole bunch of pieces together in a really short amount of time ironically mm. because you've been developing the script for a decade <laughs> you know? yeah yeah um, so we were we were like literally i think we were already down in adelaide where we were filming and i hadn't had this this, this richard this this character cast and i needed someone really amazing and you know it's a it's a big ask and because he was in he was shooting snowpiercer i think they mm. shoot in canada if i'm not mistaken maybe and um I called him and I was just like, man, like this is is such a long shot because, you know, you're over there, we're over here. I know that you're filming and I need you in like three days, but Mm. I just, I can't, you know, like I really, really desperately wanted him because it's such a pivotal character. Um, You know, it's such at the center, his character is such at the center of the movie and at the center of Ethan's conflict and Ethan's wound and, and it's a relationship as well. There's this sort of father son story that's like really close to me as well. So I need, you know, and I needed someone that was just absolutely incredible. And yeah, he flew down. I think got a couple of days off Snowpiercer, I think, and flew down like completely jet lagged and t- turned <laughs> up at the the first reading. I think like six hours after he'd landed from Canada, and um, I was like, "Man, wow. you must be tired. Don't you, don't you want to go and sleep?" And he's like, "No, man, let's go. Let's do it." Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not like he just had a, it's not like he just had a couple lines either. I mean, you know, he's he's in a good portion and has you know, has a decent amount to do. That's that's awesome. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, he said when he landed, he said that he'd picked up he told me he picked up Neil deGrasse Tyson's book um like at the airport <laughs> and read it, read it like cover to cover in the plane on the way over. God. You know, and he landed and I, you know, and I was just like, man, you know, it's really just a relationship story. All we've got to work on is your, you know, your relationship with your son and you'll be good. And um, yeah, I mean, he just did such a phenomenal job. But I mean, you look at that guy and you're just like, if I met him, I would be like, you're a scientist that built the time machine, aren't you? That's what, that's what you are. Cause that's, that's just kind of what he looks like. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and I'm sure he gets this all the time, but he looks like Bradley Cooper is what he looks like. Uh, Doesn't he? um, Yeah. He looks a lot like him. I guess it, you know, it's funny, the, the Deborah mailman, if, if I hadn't known that she was such a legend, in australia uh i i think i could have surmised it because you give her the uh 
there's a there's a technique that filmmakers use where they introduce a character and you see them from behind first yeah. and and then you cut to it's like you know you it's like audience clap now you know <laughs> this is the person that yeah. you knew and everything uh you know uh, she was a revelation to me i know that yeah like you said uh out there it's it, you know she's very well known but i don't think yeah. she is here at all if 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 she is here then i've I have completely missed her, but uh, she's great. Yeah, I've seen her. I've seen her in a couple of things, but I think they were both Australian series because I saw her uh, the the Wolf Creek uh, series yeah. and then um, Mystery Road. Is that, I think that's what it's yeah. called. Yeah. Yeah. She also she was, she was in a movie called The Sapphires from a few years ago that was that uh, was was quite successful. I mean, she's I think she's done uh, uh, you know maybe like probably forty or fifty projects. I'd imagine um, mm. she's quite prolific over here. But yeah, you're probably right. She probably. Um, probably uh more well known um at home uh i thought it was kind of funny that you uh that you i I didn't realize this until today actually i i was you know kind of going through the credits and everything but uh cody smith mcphee's dad is in this movie as well well (laughs) yeah nice pickup (laughs) yeah yeah Um, yeah. the, uh, the, he plays a, uh, he plays like there's a, the, I think it's at the beginning where he, he takes this yeah. guy's job and that's the guy he steals yeah, that guy. That's job. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was, a, that was really cool actually, because, um, not to, I'm going to speak for Cody, but, but, but I think he, I think because Cody lives, he normally lives in LA, right. And, and his dad's over here. So they don't see each other. And it, much like myself and my dad, we don't spend, you know, we don't live near each other. So mm-hmm. it was kind of cool because, because, you know, Andy came to hang out with us on set a little bit and it was a nice, you know, I think it was a nice moment for Cody to be able to hang out with his dad a little bit. And so, you know, it was really fun to kind of put them in a scene together. And I don't think they'd ever done that before, you know, actually kind of act together because Andy's an actor, obviously, like a, an, an accomplished actor in his own right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was cool. It was something that Cody really wanted to do. And, and, and yeah, I was really, I was honored to be able to um, put it together for yeah. He got to like he got to talk back to his dad and not get like yeah know, get, get in trouble. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's gotta be cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if while you were writing this, uh, you thought, may, I mean, you may have just said, I'm going to do this time travel story and, that, and that's what I'm going to do. But it feels like you also have another movie in this, in this thing. You could huh. go through the whole thing about, you know, O2 and how it's become currency in this world. And yeah. uh, obviously it's causing the synthetic uh, oxygen is causing some respiratory problems in some people. Uh, in, yeah, in that's right. Uh, I, I was thinking yeah, I mean- you could actually make a whole other movie out of that. Absolutely. I think there's probably a, and that is something that's come up through the whole, not, not even just recently, but through the development process as well, you know, like there was various ideas at different points of how you can sort of split it off into, you know, this idea for a television series um, that, you know, you could do a prequel, um, yeah. you know, the invent, the invention of time travel, you know, where there's some kind of like monikers that happened before this send Ethan, Ethan White message. Um, 
you could do a sequel, I think. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> but, but, but it's, yeah, there's some really interesting um, questions, I think, to be asked around around the theme, I think. Yeah. And the yeah. world. I was, yeah. I was, I, I was uh, just thinking, man, this is, yeah, this, I mean, it really does have that kind of world. You could really explore that pretty deep, but. Yeah. Um, One thing I will say as well about that too, though, is that I think what was important for me is there was some, again, not without delving into what happens at the end or anything like that, but there were some questions that were asked through the development phase that, you know, came to me about like, oh, have you, have you, have you thought about ending the movie on more of a kind of like question rather than a, you know, like mm-hmm. sort of don't quite resolve, you know? And mm-hmm. it was really important to me that we make a statement, you know, that, that it's, I don't, you know, like, like I made the movie because I believe something like I, I, you know, I, I wanted to put a message out there that, look, this is my point of view. This is the film's point of view about what this thing means. And I want to be clear about what that is. Like, I don't, I don't want to be like, here's a question and that's it. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't want to ram it down people's throat and have it be preachy, you know, and, and, and ultimately you want it to be a conversation for the audience, but I, I didn't want to end it on that kind of like, look here, you have to watch the sequel to find out what happens. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh, no, that, yeah. that ending note is, is perfect. Like I, 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 th- oh. I think it is. It, that, I thought that was great. I was, uh, I was actually uh, going to ask you about the, like, I'm obviously not uh, reveal what happens in the ending and everything, yeah. but I was, I, I, I did <laughs> want to talk about the score and then lead up to another yeah. question. First off, let's go, let's, let's talk about score. I always think it's interesting when there's two composers credited. Uh, yes. So uh, how, how, what was that like? How does that work? How does, uh, how did that come about? So Ken Lample, um, he scored another one of my producer Lisa's films called The Furies. Um, mm-hmm. And that went, in, that went really well. And I, I listened to the score. I, watched, I was at the premiere of that movie and I heard the score and I was like, wow, this guy's like actually really incredible. And independently he had asked Lisa, like, what are you doing next? And she said, well, Seth is making a movie. Maybe you guys should meet. And, um, yeah, and he, I think Lisa tells me, she told me the story that she sent him the script and he called her and said, I'm on a train on the way to Sydney right now. I have to meet with Seth. <laughs> and yeah. and yeah. Kirsten, he, he, he and Kirsten both, right? They were together. Yeah. And so they came and we were in, we were in like pre-pre, pre-pre phase. And I'm just, it's just me hanging out with the HODs, doing storyboards and, and working out stuff. And, um, and yeah, so I met with those guys for lunch and they just, they just connected, I think, just with the script, you know, like just on a really kind of like uh, really strong level. And Ken um, studied under John Williams of all people. Oh, really? Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he brings this kind of just like really, like really strong breadth of kind of like classical knowledge in his construction of film scores, right? Like he's very classical, has incredible kind of like encyclopedia of of, of knowledge um, and also just has a lot of the same tastes. Um, you know, and Kirsten similarly, um, they're a great pair because I think she's quite different. She's a concert pianist and mm. brings a sort of, and she's, you know, she's uh, from a very different part of the world to him and she brings a really kind of beautiful feminine kind of um, uh, aesthetic and and um, they worked really, really, really great together, you know. In terms of like the process, generally I, I would meet with Ken like, we have a screening theater set up in our, um, in our house. And so where my office is, so he would come down, um, and well, actually I'll tell you a little bit of backstory on this. So when we started working together, I, I'm like, I'm very big on preparation and process. And I, I sort of like, I, I edit with temp score. I know some directors don't do that. I know some editors don't like directors to do it. Some composers don't like directors to do it. I do it because it's mm-hmm. like 
to me is like the tone of a movie is like, you know, the sum of its parts. And I want to try and find the tone of a scene. And, and I think sometimes, you know, music is a really big part of that. It's hard because then a composer is like, oh, you know, you want me to, to match, match or make better this Hans Zimmer score that you put, yeah, into, yeah. That you put into this scene. Um, and so, like, I sent, I sent Ken and Kirsten this sort of two-hour playlist um, of just, like, tonal references, right? It was basically, like, this tone Bible of the whole movie um, and before we filmed. And, and then I'm, I'm driving this, like, a 16-hour drive from Sydney to Adelaide to film with, with Lisa, and we're in the car, and I get this email from Ken. He said, dude, I've sent you this, this uh, we've scored an hour of music. This is before we've rolled on anything, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen this hour of music. Here's this playlist just to check out, just to see what you like, what you don't like, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I listened to that in the car and just put it on loop for like eight hours while we were driving one day. And I was crying, <laughs> going, oh my God, here's the, here's the, you know, like starting to feel it's like the first pass of the movie is sort of coming to life, you know, all of the things. So the, the pitch I'd given him, the script, the, we talked about themes for the characters, the tone, we talked about instruments, we talked about all the references, you know. Um, and so then I was able to take some of those tracks and play them for the actors on set. And I would say, here is the tone of this scene that we're, that we're performing right now. Right. And like another communication device. And that really helped to get them into, into character and into the world. Um, and then when we got into the edit, we, you know, I mean, we just essentially started from scratch and scored the actual movie then because we used this other stuff as reference, but yeah, so they essentially scored the movie twice. Um, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I think that sort of process, I mean, he's so enthusiastic, Kirsten as well, both of them are so enthusiastic. They just want to, they just want to like work as much as they possibly can to get the best possible result. And so he was just pushing the whole time to start as early as possible so that we would end up with something that really um, spoke to the film in the strongest way possible, I think. Yeah. I and, didn't it, and it really does. Yeah, I didn't realize that they worked together. Uh, I, I did a, I, what I'm going to admit was a lazy IMDb lookup of them where, uh, you know, the the stuff that came up for known for on both of them weren't, didn't match. And usually if there, yeah. if there's a, if there's like a, a partnership, you see the same movies just come up. But in this case, yeah. it didn't. So I just assumed that yeah. you had two different ones, and and uh, and I didn't. You know, there's all a lot of reasons why you would have two composers on a movie. But I was just kind of uh, curious on this because I love this score yeah. in this. Um, and what it was going to lead into is this is just a uh, you know a, a stroke your ego type of question, I guess. But hmm. uh, I, not to again not to spoil the movie, but when you have that score at the end of the movie. And then the screen cuts to your name and it says written and directed by Seth Larney. What do you feel like when that happens? <laughs> I mean, you feel 10 feet tall, you know, yeah. because I, I think, yeah, I mean, look, you know, no, I mean, not really. I mean, it, <laughs> look, I think Ken's score, Ken, Ken talks about, um, there's this really cool EPK um, behind the scenes piece that we did with Ken where he talks about the, the process from his point of view. Um, and one of the things he talks about that's really, really cool is that there's that there's this main theme of the of the film that we constructed. But then as the film kind of builds, like we did a couple of things. We used the shepherd tone, um, which I totally ripped off from Chris Nolan, who you know obviously pioneered <laughs> it from other places. But um, but we used the shepherd tone, and then with that builds over the whole of the last act. But then as it as it as the music starts to fold in on itself on that last passage, the score starts to sort of 
duplicate and repeat itself on multiple levels of division, right? Of rhythm. Mm -hmm. So you have a score happening on four beats, you have it happening on four bars, you have it happening on eight, you have it happening on two, and those are folding over each other. And so that last, that last kind of passage that you're hearing is actually the theme that's actually like looping it in itself on different timings and it builds up into this kind of like orchestra. Um, Yeah. And so, I mean, it's cool, you know, like, I mean, what about like, seeing my name up there I'm not, I'm not sure I mean I, I'm, I'm moved every time I get what I will say is that every time I get to that point in the film I'm I'm, I'm moved and I'm, and I'm proud you know yeah. not about my name but about the fact that I think that the film lands in the right place yeah right totally I I I, uh, I just I, I I didn't even you know I didn't even do anything on this film and I was sitting there going whoa bam it just feels <laughs> right when it uh, when mm. that when it has that uh, it cuts to the you know the credits and everything I, I just I don't mm-hmm. know it's a, it's a it's a good uh, uh, a statement at the end of this uh, movie. I, I always find with movies, right? Like when you're editing a film, it's like you've got to end the film somewhere, and and that <laughs> like the picking of the beat, like the picking of the beat or the moment where you're like, okay, that's it now. That's the last frame. Like that's like yeah. you've earned it. You know, like the audience is in the right place. They're at the pinnacle of the experience right here. You know, mm-hmm. it's an interesting yeah. and cool kind of like choice. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you have some some areas where you probably did a lot of green screen type of stuff. But uh, did you yeah. shoot any location, uh, uh, any kind of locations at all? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. I think one with this film in particular, because it's so sci-fi, um, we didn't have the benefit of really being able to find many locations that fit that fit kind of what we were trying to say. So. We had to build essentially everything from scratch. There's one building in the film that is, um, which is the foyer when they go into the Chronicle foyer. That's a pre-existing um, foyer, but we mm-hmm. addressed it. But every other space that has some kind of construction in it is built. There's no other. There's no other location shooting for a building in the film. The only location shooting that we did, um, well, actually, it was not true. There's one tunnel that we filmed in that we dressed, and um, but it's just the forest stuff. Like the, we we and it was surprisingly um and sadly difficult to find a beautiful lush looking rainforest in australia when we went to film because oh wow drought in the middle of the most you know worst historic drought that we've ever recorded in australia when we went to film you know when i wrote Mm -hmm. this film i was literally sitting in the rainforest that i grew up in thinking well i'm just going to shoot it here in this rainforest like this is the most beautiful rainforest and i want to tell a, a, a story about this rainforest that i grew up in and then when and we did a couple of test shoots in this rainforest that I grew up in, and um, over the years to bring a crew up there and see if the community could sustain a crew and, and that there was enough resources and we could house them and how the shooting would go and stuff. So we shot a short film up there about ten years ago. Then we shot a proof of concept trailer up there. But then when it come, came time to actually shoot the actual movie, it was dead. Like it was just brown and dry, and there was no and it's like old growth rainforest that is this beautiful rainforest and. I was just thinking, wow, this is so horrible and ironic that, you know, I set a movie in this place because it's so beautiful. And then by the time you go to shoot it, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it doesn't look like that anymore. So right. we had to scour all of Australia and fly the flyer crew, like 1500, like a thousand miles away to find this small little pocket of forest that you see in the, in the film. Yeah. It, I, I, that is a beautiful uh, area and everything. And I felt like that was probably, probably one of the only actual location shots that you got in the, in the, in the, in the movie. But, um, but but I I always like, anytime I see something that pretty and everything, I'm like, where, where is that? I want to go there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 
there is one shot. Now, I won't say what it is because it's it'll it'll it's a bit of a spoiler. But it's I'll say it's a big it's a big kind of helicopter shot that's on location, and that is actually shot in the town that I grew up in. Like and and it's the only shot that is shot in the town, and it's it was important to me to do it just because I really wanted to bring a piece of the film back to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that in my mind I'd always wanted to go and shoot all of the location stuff there, and, and this was the next best thing I could do. So I, I kind of fought quite hard to to at least sh- shoot this one shot there, and it's actually the closing shot of the film is the one I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad that we got that in there. But but even that shot, like like I think we were worried that when we got up there, that whole shot would be full of smoke. Um, and you can actually see a little bit of it. You can't really see it in the frame, but I think over the sh- over the, the horizon of where we were filming, it was all on fire back there. Even when we oh wow, oh my god! Um, but every, everything else that everything else we shot was, was studio in uh, South Australia and Adelaide studios. It was all we took over the whole the whole studio. They got two uh, quite big uh, good stages there, and we we built we yeah we filled the whole studio out. Built the, the lab in in their main stage. And then in the mm-hmm. second stage, we built um, the apartment, Ethan's apartment, and then we built this. Uh, there's a another set. Um, I won't say what it is, but it's an, and then there's a, a, a the office, Jackson's office, and then we also took over the car park and we built a big green screen kind of psych, like a big sort of you know 180 degree um, blue screen out there for some of the big sort of set extension stuff. Right, right. Um, it, it, you have the. Uh, it looks like you have some sort of. I guess. You know, I guess at this point, every sci-fi movie has some Blade Runner influence in it. Uh, <laughs> when you look at the <laughs> how in the world do you beat that cityscape? You know, it's like it's the standard, right? Yeah. So, you know, well, how uh, do you, yeah, it's hard to get away from too. You know, like I think when you like, you know, for me, I wanted to, I wanted to build this. I mean, it, as I was saying before, it all comes back to just trying to reduce these things to story and 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 how does it really serve the tone of the of the, the theme that you're trying to tell but you know it's a dystopian gritty grimy you know sad kind of place and Blade Runner just did that you know I think to perfection so it's hard to it's hard to get away from it right right um Jonathan do you have any other questions well no I was actually I was actually about to ask about the uh, the world building but I, I think he uh I mm. think he kind of covered that in the in the last answer so I think I'm good it always gets you into it, right? Like anytime yeah. you see that, I, to me, like anytime I see one of these cityscapes, I don't know what it is. It's like I want yeah. to know more about this this city, even if it's even though it's ugly on the inside. It's like it's very attractive to me. Like what kind of movie we're about to get into? Yeah. So you need you need to make twenty sixty eight. Is what we're saying. Yeah. Something I can did we talk about color already? Because I can tell you something cool about the design of the city. Oh, please do. Yeah, please. So one of the things that, as I was saying, I, I try and to like bring some of these choices back to, you know, it's like if you're designing a city, you know, what's the, what do you want the emotional impact for the audience to be? And also just, and really that just re- reduces down to the character arc and where you're trying to position the audience with, with the character, you know, as the character is going through these emotional impacts, the audience is going through the same emotional impact. So, so an example of that with the design of the city is that, um, because he moves between these two worlds, um, there's no, not only is there no trees in the 2067 world, that was like the starting point of the concept, but, you know, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if there's not just no trees, but there's no green at all. So, mm-hmm. so you, pro- you, you know, hopefully you don't notice it kind of like intellectually, it's more just a feeling or a tone, yeah. right? But, but in all of the production design, and we could do it because we had to build everything. So it meant that we could make that choice on kind of every level, luckily. Um, but, 
you just you don't yeah there's there's actually one moment so everything is everything is is blue and, and red and brown and that gives it a very specific i think kind of uh feeling right and yeah. so there's a moment in the first act where Xanthi, his wife, he really symbolizes this kind of, you know, the, his, mo- his motivation, this person that, that he needs to become. She's a, she's a um, botanical history teacher. I like, like the idea of botanical history, like, cause uh, like botany doesn't exist anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But she's paints, she's an artist and she's painting with paint and she mixes two colors of paint together to accidentally create green. And you don't see her do it, but then she's kind of play fighting with him and she takes his paint and she kind of wipes it across his face. And again, oh. it's just a feeling. It's not something that you kind of hopefully really notice, but it's quite in the frame. It's quite like, wow, like what was that? Did something just happen? Because it's this color that just kind of cuts through all of the rest of the palette of everything, everything that you've seen. And so she's like figuratively and literally giving him the gift of of green, you know, of who he of who he needs to become thematically through the story, right? So that's just like <laughs> a little that's a this small precursor of these kind of tonal shifts that that I'm sort of we're sort of trying to do, and then and then of course when you get to the end of the first act, and I mean people if you see the trailer, you'll see that he lands in in green. Um, there's a huge shift, a huge tonal shift that goes from the complete absence of green to only green, right? And mm-hmm. so I, I think that the, the goal there, at least, is that you have this really heightened emotional impact, like this this heightened emotional response to that shift in tone you know, that makes those two worlds feel even more separate, if you like. Right. Uh, thank you so much for uh, giving us that detail because that's yeah. something that is, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I think there are details a lot of times and directors will be very uh, forthcoming about it and say, you know, this only means something to me, but, uh, mm. you know, I'm glad that it's in this movie and everything. Um uh, but, uh, but anytime I hear something like that, I'm like, yeah, that gives me a little bit more appreciation <laughs> for what you've done. You added little details yeah. like that. And, uh, and next time I watch this movie, I will, I will definitely keep an eye out for it because that's, uh, that's, that's great. Oh, that's really cool, man. Well, I think, you know, I think that all those sorts of little things, you know, they're the, they're the sorts of things that you use that hopefully, hopefully each of those things on their own and not really, they're not really of consequence to the audience, except that they kind of hopefully build up all together to to end up in the experience you know that you that end up end up in the feeling that you kind of have as you're walking out of the out of the cinema and you know you don't want them to be so obtuse or in the face that people go oh wow i see, totally see what you did there that was really on the nose you know you just want it to be like this, <laughs> this texture you know right or hopefully building up into a bigger a bigger idea Right. I mean, it's not anything that I, I picked up on at all, but yeah, I mean, there are times that I have seen movies where they're like, Oh, okay. All right. I see you're doing a thing. I get it. Uh, we would like to uh, thank Seth Larney for uh, giving us his time and uh, adding some insight to this movie. Mm-hmm. 2067 is coming out on October 2nd theaters on demand and digital. Uh, I know that both Jonathan and I really, really liked it. So uh, you right. should uh, try to find it wherever uh, wherever you can uh, when uh, October second rolls around, which isn't too far around. It's like two days from this yeah. recording. So two days. Um, yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, um, that's going to do it uh, for this interview. It's Chris Atkinson and Jonathan Watkins. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com.